Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. Space, the final frontier. These are the voyages of the Starship Enterprise. It's continuing mission to explore strange new worlds. And we're back! Thank you for listening. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Engage, the official Star Trek podcast. I am your host, Jordan Hoffman. We've got a great guest today. Morgan Gendel will be calling in. Morgan is the author of some of the greatest Star Trek episodes ever, including The Inner Light, The Resican Flute. Do, 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 do. I mean, it's a very emotional thing, just thinking about it. We're going to talk to Morgan about The Inner Light, about Starship Mine, and his other work, and also his interest scientific interest in something called the connectome. You've heard of the genome? Well, there's something called the connectome, which he likes to talk about, and I'm not 100% sure what it is, so he's going to tell us. Um, You're listening to this episode. I'm recording it before I go on the Star Trek cruise, so by the time this airs, I will have survived the cruise, or I will be at the bottom of the sea with Terry Farrell. I don't know, but I'm hoping I survived. I think I did. Um, and we had a good time on the cruise, so the, we'll be talking about the cruise in another episode. But, um, uh, yes, it's uh, just picture me while you're listening to this, while you're doing the dishes, while it's cold in places like New York City, know that there was a moment in time when 900 Star Trek fans were sunning themselves in the Caribbean on the Star Trek cruise. And there'll be another one in 2018, so maybe you can get in on that one. All right, cool. So let's talk to our friend Morgan Gendel. But if you need to contact me, I always like to remind you to go to Facebook.com slash Engage the Official Star Trek Podcast. That's Facebook.com slash Engage the Official Star Trek Podcast. Or you can tweet at me at at Jay Hoffman. I, I respond to most of my tweets. Uh, or if you're a jerk, I just ignore you. Um, but if you're nice, I usually say thank you. So let's take it from there, and uh, we'll talk again soon. Hey, everybody. I want to take a moment to tell you about Blue Apron. Blue Apron is the number one fresh ingredient and recipe delivery system in the United States. Uh, What that is, it's somewhere in between cooking for yourself and ordering out. You don't have the time to cook a meal from absolute scratch, but you, you, you don't want to spend the money on ordering out. Plus, it's not very good for you. The portions are too big. It's usually junk. Blue Apron is where it's at because they give you just the amount 
of ingredients that you need. You know, you don't have to buy a, a bunch of radishes. They give you one radish. Sometimes you only need one radish or one scallion or one clove of garlic. And um, you cook it up and it's ready to go. And uh, you, uh, you know, it doesn't take that long. It usually takes about a half hour or less even. I don't know. It depends on what you're making. But, um, and this is all very fresh stuff from, you know, good... Uh, good sort of regenerative farms and well-raised. Now, these animals uh, are, are live in better conditions than I do half the time. So what you got to do is check out um, check out this week's menu and get your first three meals for free. Whoa! With free shipping by going to blueapron.com/engage, you will love how good it feels and tastes to create incredible home-cooked meals with Blue Apron. So don't wait. That's blueapron.com slash engage. Blue Apron, a better way to cook. Yeah. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. This is Engage, the official Star Trek podcast. Energize. And we're back, and we have someone on the phone. Uh, let's get our communicator open here. Oh, yeah. We have on the line from all the way in uh, Los Angeles, California, Mr. Morgan Gendel. Mr. Morgan Gendel, hello. Good to speak to you. Hi, Jordan. How are you? Great to be here. And uh, you are in L.A., right? Did I get that correct? I, I'm close enough. I'm in Santa Monica. Normally, I'd say sunny Santa Monica, but it's been pretty overcast for a few days. Oh no, that's no good. Well, uh, you know, um, you know what? You know, you, you need a little rain once in a while. The weather's always so good in Southern California. You deserve occasional rain and snow. That's what I say. We need a change. We need some semblance of season, and we also need water, so no complaints. That's true. Now, uh, for fans that are listening, uh, Morgan is a. Um, uh, a writer-producer of roughly, I'm going to give a rough estimate, 900,000 television shows that you've seen. Uh, that's, the, that's the rough estimate. But to our purposes here on Engage, the official Star Trek podcast, he is the writer or co-writer of four Star Trek episodes, um, all of which are wonderful, but one of which is uh, particularly beloved by all. He is, of course, the author of The Inner Light, which uh, most people say is uh, is is the best TNG episode, and some people say is the best episode overall. And those who don't put it in the top three or four are are wrong. I think you know it's it's empirically proven that the Inner Light is one of the best <laughs> episodes of uh, of all of Star Trek, and um, and that's uh, and that's cool. So uh, hats off uh, to to you for that, and. Um, and also, you know, works on, uh, on, on a lot of different stuff. So I want to talk about all the neat stuff that he's up to. But first, I want to let you, the listener, know where Morgan and I first met in person. It was about two years ago, right? Yeah, yeah. I didn't believe that long ago, but it was. Yeah. It was two years ago. And it was really, at least for me, I don't know about you, maybe you do this sort of thing all the time, but I found that to be one of the stranger locations and events that I've been to. It was a meetup of a group called the Brooklyn Futurists, which sounds pretty neat, right? And it was in, you know, Brooklyn, for those of you who don't know, 
Um, you know, you hear about it now. It's very trendy. It's very hip. It's very young, and it is in a lot of sections. But Brooklyn is vast, and there is a section of Brooklyn that is still functioning industrial. And there's a, a creek called Newtown Creek, which is loaded with toxins and various poisons, and still a functioning. Um, Port, I suppose, and there's a lot of warehouses and old buildings, and one of these warehouses has been turned into an event space where this strange group called the Brooklyn Futurists do their meetup. And how did you get called in to give a presentation there? Do you remember? Yeah, let me remember. I think I was asked by the Museum of Science Fiction, and I got to give a shout out to them. They're, uh, they're a museum yet to be built in Washington, D.C., and they had their first ever convention this past summer. And so I'm involved with them. I'm on their advisory board. And I did an event with them in Washington, D.C., where I gave a talk uh, about many things, but including the inner light, not the futurist talk but about the inner light and some other things. And then um, we talked about recreating that in Brooklyn. So I gave a talk at the Brooklyn Library. But as long as I was coming there, there was, there was a gentleman who's also on the advisory board who's a member of the Brooklyn Futurist, and he got in touch with them. And I don't know if you met Mike Taubleb, uh, a great guy who runs the Brooklyn Futurist. When you said they're, they're, they're a strange group, the group itself is not strange. That meeting that night, where it was located and some of the people there, it was a little strange. But that's how I got connected with them. As long as I was in town and doing events for the Museum of Science Fiction, I also went out to the Futurists and uh, prepared that talk. And it's the only time I've given that, uh, that talk about, about the future. Yeah, you mentioned Morgan that it was a it was a, an interesting group. I remember there was a woman there. Yeah. She was from Spain. She was from northern Spain. And she was a performance artist and um she was a cyborg activist. And yeah. and she yeah. had a, a a Catalan accent from northern Spain and she was very beautiful also. A beautiful woman and she said these things in English, she said to me, I fight for the rights of the cyborg. And I'm like, I just want to follow you around all day and uh, <laughs> learn about cyborg activism. And she was a performance artist and a dancer. And she had attached to her body, I think it was on her side somewhere, she had a, a tiny seismograph that was connected somehow via, via some sort of connection to a... Something that told her that whenever there was an earthquake anywhere, and apparently there are many earthquakes happening all the time. I didn't know that until I spoke to her. So that when she was doing her performance, she would incorporate the seismic movements of the earth into whatever she was doing based on, you know, this contraption that she had on her on her body. And I said, this, I, I think, I think, yeah, I think every time the earth moved, she would start to dance. Yeah. And I'm like, this, this is fantastic. You know, I, why don't I hang around these people <laughs> in a weird warehouse in the, the dingy part of Brooklyn more often? So that's the first person I meet, this beautiful raven haired Catalan dancer with a cyborg attachment dancing to the earth. And then we sit down and you gave this presentation. And uh, what I, what, what sort of clicked for me that night was how much of your work um, of the of the four episodes of Star Trek that you've written, Inner Light, um, Armageddon Game, The Passenger, uh, you've also had Starship Mine, which is a little different. 
The other three share a similarity with what you were talking about, which is um, an eventual a theory that you think will eventually become a reality, which is changing people's brains via um, technology in concrete and tactile ways. Basically, the the the, the you know the the pitch of the of the inner light is. Uh, Picard gets zapped by a probe and, you know, a half hour later, he's got an entire new life inside of him. And uh, that comes up a little bit in The Passenger in that, you know, you have a character who is, um, you know, you could say uh, possessing or sort of inserts their their mind into someone else's. And in Armageddon Game 2, it's it's, um, Bashir and... uh, uh, Chief O'Brien. Miles O'Brien. They have to eradicate uh, these weapons, and then they themselves must be eradicated also by the by the villains because they have knowledge of the weapons. So your work is a lot of like an unusual look at memory, thought, the mind. And is this something that you were aware of as sort of a trajectory in the course of your work, or is it just a, a three out of four coincidence? It's somewhere between the two. I'm fascinated with this idea, and I, I didn't realize a lot of these things until I had to put together that talk. But I don't know if you recall, one of the things I referred to, and I showed a lot of slides and clips from movies and stuff, I went as far back as Forbidden Planet, which I believe I'm going to say is 1956 that came out. That sounds about right. And, and it has to Leslie Nielsen and uh, introduces Robbie the Robot. And it has to do with this civilization, the Krell, that stored all the knowledge of mankind. And I made a joke at the time. The funny thing is, in this movie, when you finally get to see where this, the Krell have stored this thing, it's the size of, like, it's, I figured out, because I figured out that it's, like, about 20, 20 by 20 football fields. It was, like, 2.5 cubic miles. And pretty much that's everything that we now carry in our hand, in the <laughs> cell phone, we have access to. So it goes to show how things have changed. But uh, that movie made a big impression on me because one of the characters expands his brain uh, and it just, it kills him. His brain can't be expanded to hold as much knowledge as it tries to put him. So I don't know if that's when my, uh, you know, my interest in this area began. Certainly not when the movie came out, but when I saw it later. But um, yeah, I think I've long had an interest in this and it really coalesced with the inner light. And then the other Star Treks I wrote, it was more or less coincidence uh, in The Passenger, which I think is a terrible episode <laughs> of, of television. I really do. Um, but the, but the idea behind, the idea, underlying idea behind it is brilliant. Let's say that. Yeah, well, thank you. I'm not sure. It was, it, 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 I, I won't say that's brilliant, but it was interesting that basically this bad guy, Vanticus, carried around his mind like in his fingernail and could transmit it to somebody else so he could, yes. So I guess you would say, yes, I'm very interested in the idea of what makes, what makes the brain a mind and how, what is our identity like uh, in terms of who are we if we have someone else's uh, mind or the map, you know, the connectome, the map of their brain imposed upon ours. Who are we then really? Are we, are we really just what our, our connectome is, the map of our individual brain. And I'm pretty fascinated with that. Well, yeah, I mean, because at the end of the day, 
you know, a brain is 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 uh, matter, right? And and That's you, right. the the term you just use, connectome, which I will admit is a word that I learned that night in Brooklyn, um, is uh, and I and you're gonna explain it far better than I can, but it is the concept of manipulating, uh, you know, m- manipulating, I guess, the, the, the matrix of the w- how the brain is wired to change, in a way, even physical attributes of things. Is that, is that uh, did I hit that remotely close to what it is? Pretty close. The manipulation part is, is the part that I bring to this as a science fiction writer. The connectome itself is like, if you think of the word genome for the human genome, it's the map of any one individual's genetic structure. The connectome is the same thing with the brain. It's the map of any one individual's brain with all those billions of neurons. I think they estimate they might be able to complete that. I'm going to get this wrong, but I'm going to say in like 20 years, it's a lot harder than the genome because there's so many pieces, so many individual neurons in any one brain. But but, but yes, your mind is basically made up of a brain that has uh, part uh, chemical transference of impulses and part electrical transference of impulses. And I think what I've, um, you know, kind of explored in some of my work is can you go into that with some sort of machine or mechanism and change that map, change what a person's brain architecture is, and in so doing, you're basically turning them into a different person. Yeah, and and the uh, implications, uh, you know, it's not that crazy. I mean, like you said, they're, 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 they are trying to map the connectome, and, uh, you know, some of the, the practical applications are, you know, uh, alcoholism, for example, has been diagnosed as a disease. And if we can find where it is in the mind that makes some people more prone to alcoholism than others, and if we can find it, and if we can go in there with a tiny little laser and, and snip something out or alter it a little bit, that could cure this, right? I mean, that's, that's, that's sort of one of the, the reasons for, for thinking about this sort of thing, I would imagine. That's one of the things I posited at that talk. I didn't use alcoholism. I said somebody who's a shopaholic. And I wanted it to seem even more frivolous. You could go in. One of the things I learned that astounded me is that if you put a subject um, in an MRI scan and uh, show them a picture of a, of a hammer so that they will think about a hammer, you're going to be blown away by this. Their brain will light up in the shape of a hammer. You know, thinking about a hammer actually creates the shape of a hammer by the electrical connections in your brain. So it's almost like we store memories as, as snapshots of things. That, that blew me away. Hmm. Uh, so that means that you might be able to go in and do uh, functional magnetic resonance imaging uh, and find out where exact clusters of neurons are that affect certain behaviors. And then, as you said, go in either chemically or electronically and zap those neurons and you're no longer a shopaholic you're no longer an alcoholic right and 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 you know this is something that is not that wild to think about as as a possible thing in 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 real world applications i mean you know the 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 adjustments to the connectome that we think about especially with regard to inner light is like you know i'd learn i'd love to learn how to speak chinese you're not going to be able to go into a a booth and they, you know, put the Chinese program in and push a button, that's probably not going to ever be 
a reality, correct? Well, I, I, I would disagree. I mean, I think, sure, first we were talking about excising certain behaviors that just on the face of it seems easier. But I would also suggest that we're probably not that far off from having either chemical or electrical stimulation to stimulate certain clusters. So you stimulate a cluster of neurons that's involved with, say, um, memory or language or both. And maybe that's going to enhance your ability. Maybe you're going to build more robust new neurons through the stimulation than you would have otherwise. And so you're going to study Chinese and learn it 10 times faster. Ah. So I think, I think that's a possible. I don't, I don't know if anybody's doing this yet, but again, my whole, whole approach is to look at uh, the, the, the science fiction kind of extension of things that are and, and kind of, um, you know, pose them in my work. And, and, and at the same time, I'm talking to people who, who are working on this to see how close I'm getting and if things, these things will happen. Where where are the um um uh, where's the work being done on this sort of uh, science right now? I think you mentioned, you know, it was some of the it was like a Princeton University or something like that. There, is that where it's going on? Uh, well, there's uh, Dr. Sebastian Sung, who is very well known in this field, who is who's spearheading the map of the connectome, and there are a couple other universities that are doing related things to look into this. But he, he's the one I know the best, and he wrote a book on it called The Connecto. So that's where I got a lot of this information from. And um, I think we'll see how quickly it moves along, but I think things tend to move faster than we think they're going to. So uh, I wouldn't be surprised if we see some of these things <laughs> happening perhaps in our lifetimes. Wow. It's far out. Now, these are the positive uh, attributes there. You know, you get this into the wrong person's hands and, you know, God knows what could go on. Right. Well, now you're talking to me as a writer. And that's, <laughs> that's the fun part where you can plan something. I mean, the funny thing is the, the original idea in Armageddon game was that the blueprints for these weapons were imprinted on uh, Miles O'Brien, like imprinted in his DNA like as like kind of a binary code. So yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm very interested in thinking about what happens if you can go in and change somebody's mind and either implant information. So they're a tool carrying, like they're, they're, they're an intelligence mule carrying top secret weapon plans or spy stuff in their brain. They don't even know it or else you turn somebody into an evildoer just by changing the map of their brain. So there's a lot of fun stuff there. <laughs> you know, uh, it, it's funny because um, I, was, I mentioned before that you have a, a lot of um, credits as a writer, producer, in television. A lot of it is science fiction, and clearly this is something that you have a connection with. But a lot of it is not science fiction. You've worked a lot on shows like Nash Bridges and, and, and uh, Law and & Order, for example, um, how does how does working on non sci fi shows like that um, work for a guy like you that has clearly got sci fi in your in your veins in your DNA? Do you bring your sort of love of this sort of thinking into more mainstream, uh, you know, uh, wide stream, uh, wider affair? You know, for for something like uh, like Law and Order or something? You know, is is your Star Trek side, you know? Is it snuck in there a certain way uh, into the writing of those shows? Here's what I think they have in common for me in terms of how I work. 
I think it's all kind of, you're going to laugh, but I think it's all math to me. Everything seems to be math to me. Music, writing, um, it's, it's, it's problem solving. It's looking for the patterns and problem solving and finding formulas. And the similarity is to work on law and order, you had to really come up with a problem that could be solved. You basically started with the solution and worked backwards, but you had to come up with some kind of murder mystery and find out the why done it, why somebody would do it, but then figure out what the clues were. It's putting together a puzzle. And that's not that different from how I think of science fiction to when I was supposed to go in and pitch what eventually became the inner light. I basically was facing uh, a problem or a puzzle, which was, what can I pitch them that's going to get them to buy this pitch for me and do this episode? What can I do with these characters? So it's really kind of a similar kind of practice, at least in my brain. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. This is Engage, the official Star Trek podcast. Energize. Um, tell me about, uh, you know, your, your, your involvement with Star Trek as a, as a young person, when did you first become aware of Star Trek? When did you become a fan? What was sort of your, uh, if you had sort of an on-ramp, was there one episode that really got you excited about it? <laughs> well, I mean, I go back far enough, so I remember the original series and when it was talked about before it aired, and then when it aired, and I watched all those episodes. And I was like most people. I mean, if you go back in time to the original series, it was different and funny and great. For two years. It was only on three years, and the third year was ridiculous. And it <laughs> almost got to be Monster of the Week. So it, it wasn't blowing people away. It was a lot of people think the next generation is kind of the high point of the whole franchise. But here's the thing. I love Captain Kirk. I just thought he was great. And I've been friends with Bill Shatner for several years because we worked on another science fiction project together. And... Um, and um, I just thought he was a great character. So one of the secrets of my writing for Next Generation was I was always trying to turn the card into a more Kirk-like character. Ah, the truth is out so now, I see. Yeah, that's really what my Star Trek stuff has more in common. You have, uh, you know, homed in on this kind of brain influence thing, but it, but but... Of those four episodes you mentioned, two were for Deep Space Nine. The two that were for Next Generation are Inner Light and Starship Mine. And in both cases, those were about Picard being very different than he usually is. In right. Inner Light, yeah. he's kind of, he's a lover, not a fighter. You know, he's got, he's got a wife and kids. He's got a hearth and home. That's not exactly Kirk-like, but, you know, he did have some romance in that episode that we didn't see often from the card. Then I pulled out all the stops in Starship Mine, which is basically die hard on the Enterprise and <laughs> Picard as a badass. He's alone on the ship with bad guys. And I totally pulled out all the Kirk on that. that yeah. That's, uh, uh, I mean, pulled out the stops on the Kirk, not pulled it out, added it in. Right, right. So he's like, he's going around punching people, beating them up. It was great. He uses a Vulcan it. nerve he, pinch. He did. He did. A lot of people really, really liked that episode. So that's the, 
it's near and dear to my heart because I, I was such a Kirk fan, which is not all to say I'm not a Picard fan, but they were very different characters, and and one is hot-blooded and one is cooler-blooded. Yeah. And, and I like the idea of the hotter-blooded guy. Well, you know, it's funny. I mean, so many of the episodes that a lot of super fans love so much have have one thing in common, which is seeing the characters that we love in a, in a different environment, um, you know, in a, in a fish-out-of-water environment, uh, whether it's Mirror Mirror or whether it's um, Yesterday's Enterprise or yeah. whether it's uh, even Star Trek Four, which is, you know, it's all about our guys in the 80s. You know, it's, it's, yeah. it's seeing them on a different day or seeing a different side of the characters that we love. It's not the typical... You know, uh, it's it's not like oh another day at the office. It's it's what is what is it like to see our guys c- completely out of their element, and uh, that's sort of what Starship Mine is. I think it, it's it's in that in that league. Yes, I mean we we call those fish out of water episodes, but when you think about it, think about it. Almost every good drama has some fish out of water aspect to it. You have to throw your character into circumstance that knocks them back or throws them for a loop and that, that's unexpected to them. So the thing is, you know, you can't be a fish out of water week in and week out. And when a lot of fans over the years have said to me, Oh my God, the inner light, that's my favorite episode. I'm, I always hasten to say, yeah, but you know, you can't just do the inner light on its own. Yeah. It, it works because right. Yeah. Fans were so eager to see Picard in a different light as a family man and all that, but you, you, you can't do that every week. So I kind of lucked out that I, I was an outsider, I was a freelancer, I came in, they loved this idea, and I got to do it, and luckily we were moving so quickly, they didn't think about all the ramifications of what that should mean for Picard later on, because going back to our what you and I were talking about with the Connectome, his brain has been permanently changed, he is both these characters, he is Picard and Cayman, and he's now no longer Picard, the guy who's never going to have a family and got to experience it briefly, he actually is that other character who had the family, though that was his wife, those right. were his kids. Yeah, and it does... That, that, no, go on. To the show's credit, they did have a, um, uh, you know, they brought it up again, they didn't just forget about it all the next week, you know, it... it, it uh, you know, he, he plays his flute once more. And, uh, you know, if, if you were, you know, back in the day, if, you know, not everything was, uh, you know, you didn't have the Internet. So you may not have known what was going on if you missed the first episode. But if you had seen the first episode, you knew the relevance and the uh, emotional importance of, of that when, when it was uh, brought back the second time. Yeah, they had to they realized it was popular and they had to start, you know, just paying some tribute or homage to to that episode and what he had gone through. And also then again, in, in every incarnation of Star Trek, including Next Generation after that, they found a way to do what I, I read has now been referred to on all shows as the Inner Light episode. Oh, really? The where you, yeah, the one where you get to see the, the road not taken. So you're telling me that in, in uh, production offices, on television shows, in meetings going on in and out of Hollywood... That's in. That's jargon. That's lingo. You say, "Oh, you got to give, you got to give uh, John Snow his inner light moment." You think that's 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 a term you hear? Uh, that's not coming from me, but I did read that. That was, I believe, in a, an article in uh, Variety for the uh, what did we just celebrate? Was it the fiftieth anniversary? Of yeah. Oh, that's really cool. That. And that was one of them talked about 
talk about that. Oh, that's a, that's a great honor to be to be uh, you know short uh, shorthand lingo in, in in Hollywood. That's pretty cool. You know what's funny about that though? You're asking me what my influences were, and if you go back to the original series. There was an episode, and forgive me, I just never remember the name of it, but you'll know what it was. It was the one where Kirk is on this planet and goes in this pyramid and loses his memory. Yes, par- he um, the- yes, he marries the, uh, it's the Native American. Uh- yeah. yeah, yeah, marries, I was going to say, a Native American woman, and then, you know, Spock comes down to rescue him, and it's like a year has gone by, and he's been, so, so in a way, they had already done that. And I had totally forgotten about that because, you know, the original series, that was before anything. It was before um, video cassettes sure, or sure. streaming. or even, So I had not ever seen that episode again. But um, one of the articles on the, for the 50th anniversary uh, asked me to comment. Me, well, um, many people, Rod Moore and Brandon Bragg and lots of different people comment on, I think, what their favorite episode was from the original series because it was the 50th anniversary. And, and that one had just come to my mind, and I mentioned it. And uh, so you see, there's nothing truly original. <laughs> well, you know, that was from the, uh, the third season, the, the unfairly maligned third season. It's called the Paradise oh, Syndrome. Oh, I guess is the so. One. Now yeah. that you say that, now, now, I, now I feel bad. For oh, there are, the there are some true gems in season three. There really are. There are a lot of great episodes, but there's some, there are some dark passages also. Let's be honest. There's, uh, yeah. We, we've talked about... The ups and downs of season three on this ep- on this uh, podcast before, but uh, you know, I and mean, it's funny you're talking about Picard and how he keeps these two characters within him. Keeps three. He's got Locutus in there also. Don't forget, you know. Ah, uh, yes, yes. See, see, I have to admit, I'm not, I'm not as up on everything Star Trek as you might think I am, because as you pointed out, I've written for a lot of different shows, and when I was writing those as a as a freelance, you know, then I got hired full time on Law and Order. And that was where my brain turned at the time. And so, um, forgive me. I, I, I don't know everything about No, no, no. no I I'm just saying that Picard is a multifaceted uh, individual. I, I but, forgot uh, about that. I <laughs> forgot about that. <laughs> There's a lot going on in his connect home, let me it's tell you. It's too much. It's too much. His brain, according to, to what I talked about that night as a futurist, is, uh, his brain should actually explode. Because, <laughs> like you said, a mind is made of matter. It's... It's, I was fascinated to learn from uh, Sebastian Sung that, that what's going on in our brain is very Darwinian. Uh, there's survival of the fittest neurons. So if you keep coming back to something repetitively, those neurons will become actually more robust. The vesicles that hold the neurotransmitter become bigger. The electrical signals that travel along the dendrites become stronger. And the things you're not thinking about wither and kind of disappear so if you had three minds going on in your head that would be a lot of neurons that would have to be very robust and take up more space and i think it would make your head explode wow so uh you know that it's an expression like oh man my head's gonna explode that that uh when we when we learn how to tinker with the connectome and we can use that for nefarious purposes this is something we can do to people that we don't like we can literally make their heads explode like, and going back now to, to Forbidden Planet, that's what happened to the character played <laughs> by Warren Stevens. He expanded his brain from this machine that the Krell had, and it killed him. His brain could not hold that much information. Um, so tell me a little bit about uh, 
You, you mentioned it briefly. You said, oh, uh, William Shatner and I, we, we worked together a while ago. You're, you're making a reference to, of course, uh, Tech War, yes. which was uh, an original novel that, that William Shatner wrote, I'm guessing, in the mid-19, late 1980s, right? Was that when, it, when the first uh, book was? Let's see. I worked with Bill O'Neill. He must have written them then because I was working with him in the early 90s. And you did... Um, was it was it was like a made uh, a, a TV movie was the tech was the first tech war film right? Well, I, I didn't work on the series, and I didn't. Think, he asked me to, and I turned him down. He was mad at me for a while, but I I patched it up with him because I I got offered to go on Law and Order, which I and by the way I said to people at the time I said I don't know which way to go. Bill Shatner is asking me to be basically showrunner of the tech war series. And I'm asked to go on as a story editor on Law and Order. Yeah. And everybody I knew said the same thing. They said, well, Law and Order is just like, I mean, we were not yet in the golden, the new golden age. So it was considered probably the best written show on TV because it didn't have that much competition. Mm. So I chose Law and Order. I didn't regret it. But little did I know what's happened since then, that all the science fiction stuff has really taken off. Um, but so I was working on the TV movies with him and the way it worked is it was, it was halfway between a series and a TV movie because somebody at universal TV came up with a bright idea of doing kind of a wheel of action movies, which tech war was one. So you'd end up with, I think they did maybe a total of six tech war movies. So there were two hours instead of one hour and, mm. and occasional instead of every week, but it, it wasn't quite the same as a TV movie. It was still done, you know, under the aegis of the uh, TV department. Now, something I've always wanted to know about Tech War, and I don't know if you have the answer, but I have a theory, and I'm sure I'm not the only one. Did William Shatner name this series of books and this franchise Tech War because the word Tech, T-E-K, is so close to Trek? And there's a... Talk about the connectome, probably the the neurons that house your love and fealty for Star Trek... When it sees tech war, you're probably going to want to watch that and read that too. What's your theory on this? My theory would be absolutely yes. I, <laughs> I never asked him that, but it seems, it seems hard to avoid. You've got tech, and tech was, they must have said tech like 80 times per episode because tech was some kind of electronic drug. It sort of reminds me a lot of Minority Report and, and the, uh, the story or novel. I'm not sure if it was a short story or full novel. Uh, by Philip K. Dick, must have already been out by then. So I don't know how much was borrowed from that, or maybe Tech came first. I'd have to go look for, that For up. those who don't but, know, can you give us the elevator pitch to, to Tech War? Like, what, what, what is Tech... For those fans that maybe never never delved in, what, what is Tech War all about? Buddy cop show, five minutes in the future, where the drug of choice is an electronic drug called Tech. So it's kind of Miami Vice merged with science fiction, because you've got this buddy cop team basically chasing the cartels who are manufacturing tech. And, uh, and William Shatner was, uh, the main guy. He was the, he, I can't remember his character's name, but he played sort of like a political figure. who was also like the puppet master pulling strings and stuff. So he wasn't the main actor. He had two, uh, you know, two actors playing the cops who were the stars of the show. But he was definitely in the show, and man, that was a blast to work with, because obviously I didn't come along soon enough to work on the original series, and I guess I had already done, yeah, I had already done 
most of my TNG stuff. And then to work with him on this was just, it was hysterical. It was hysterical. It was just, it was crazy. It was everything you'd expect it to be. I mean, this, one time this was he in, called me up at, huh? I was going to say, this is in, 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 in Shatner's time, post uh, TJ Hooker, pre-Boston. Uh, um, oh, yeah. Very much Boston pre, Legal. Though. So it was, it, was a, it was a little zone in between. And this yeah. is when you got to know him. Yeah, yeah. And uh, he brought me in first to rewrite an episode and fix it, and I did that. And then I guess I did a couple more. But on one of them, I think they, they hit a budgetary problem, and they, they had to do, I don't know if you know this term, a bottle show. Yeah. Which means a show that's going to be very limited in, in how many sets it takes place and the scope of the story. And they had to do this right away. So he called me up one time. I remember I was... It was there weren't cell phones yet, so I think I, I think I just happened to uh, call my wife from payphone. I was at the mall, and she said, "Oh, you got to call William Shatner." And he said, "Morgan, go home, get your passport. We're going to Canada today. We have to write a whole new episode. We're going to write it on the plane." <laughs> so it was that kind of thing. So I go and I meet him, and I go and we go to uh, Toronto, where it was being shot, and he and I kind of worked on the story together, uh, literally on the flight. And um, then I hung around there and kind of wrote most of it. I think this was when I was about to go on some other show. I can't remember exactly the timing of it. So I ended up getting only credit on the story. And I handed off to a, a writer who's a friend of mine to write the teleplay. And I kind of supervised that a little. And this went on to be the highest rated episode of Tech oh, War. Awesome. <laughs> I love the idea of, of, of doing it on the plane. And, yeah. you know, just like, we got to get a, well, we're trapped in this room. We're going to be here for a few hours. We're got to, before we land, we got to figure out what to do with this episode. It was great. It was great. And because we, and, and because he's the boss, we could just, whatever wacky ideas I came up with, you know, if he liked them, he'd say, let's do that. You know, there was, he didn't have to answer to anybody else. So right. it was, it was a load of fun. He's a tremendous amount of fun. That's, that's terrific. That's really cool. So, um, tell me a little bit about, uh, what it is that you're working on right now. Uh, you are a man who's always got a lot of irons in the fire. What's, what's next? Well, there's two things. I have just uh, finished working as co-executive producer on season four of The 100. I don't know if you're aware of that show on the CW Network. I, you know, I must confess, uh, I have never seen it, but I have friends who love it. I have a friend who's been screaming at me to, to watch it and I have not had a chance but I, it's definitely high on the list of things that I need to see because I hear it's great it's really a different kind of show again loads of fun dark and yet totally interesting and I love this show um, created by a very talented writer named Jason Rothenberg and it was a blast working on that I did just this past season we actually just finished writing season 4 which begins airing I believe early next month on the CW for another 13 episodes. And in a nutshell, it's a hundred years in the future or hundred, actually a hundred years after there's been a nuclear apocalypse and people, the, the survivors are the people from different space stations that have grouped together to form an arc. And then, you know, a hundred years later after that, they decide to send some juvenile delinquent kids down to earth. And it's kind of win-win. If they can survive down there, then it means people can go back and live down there. And if they don't survive, well, there's more resources to go around right. on the it's arc. Like, yeah, we didn't, we didn't miss them. We didn't miss those guys That's anyway. Right. We didn't, we didn't we like them. dark so they stuff. They go down there, and then the adults follow them, and it's just a great show. What I love about it is 
so many series I've worked on, sort of, there's a little, kind of a formulaic thing you can fall into a little bit by the numbers. And I'm not saying TNG had that at all, but I will say that one of the reasons I was so successful with the inner light is because I came from the outside and I was thinking right away, how do you do things differently? How do you make the card like Kirk? How do you give him something he's never seen before? And so I think that worked in my favor. But what Jason does on this series is every episode kind of does that. It, in some way, it defies or upends expectations. And that's what I love about it. It's a very cool show. I finished the season of that. I also have a uh, spec pilot I just finished writing that is back in the inner light wheelhouse, if I might tell you about that briefly. Sure, yeah. It's called The Convergence. And basically picture this. Our military doesn't think they can get away with torture anymore, although that could change because I wrote this post, excuse me, pre-election. But so what they have figured out how to do is, you're not going to be surprised to hear this, how to change the subject's connectome by downloading, let's say, a terrorist's brain into a good guy so he can access all those memories. Ah. My starting point is that we don't have a computer big enough to store the, all the memories of a human being. That's, that's, how, that's how vast the network of information in each of our heads is. So what's big enough to store a human brain? Another human brain. So what happens is, is this, our hero, who's just kind of a geeky robotics engineer, uh, becomes the unwilling subject in this, because the original subject, I won't say too much about it, but the original subject isn't going to work anymore. So they recruit him against his will, and what they have to do is mm, kind of remove part of his brain and put a little machine in there so that they can download um, other people's brains into it. And But what they didn't expect to happen is if you download kind of a, it's not a terrorist, but it's an anarchist. If you download, let's say, a badass brain, into somebody else, they're going to be that person too. Mm. And they didn't expect that. So this geeky guy not only becomes a badass, but the badass happened to be a woman. So he has a female badass brain, and that's the first of many minds to go into his head. So you can see that's straight from the inner light. <laughs> so this is a pilot um, uh, pitch, that, uh, uh, a spec that you've got, so you were bringing this around to production companies and networks and knock wood this is something that could potentially be on the air in the next little while yeah yeah hopefully yeah i just i i only now uh having finished close to finishing services on this season of the hundred uh can i go out with this and kind of shop it around so that process is just beginning well what you do is you find a network executive and then you download into his mind <laughs> The type of person who would like a story about minds being downloaded into other minds, and then you got a green light. It's going to be easy. And when you say that, I think about it. It seems very close to uh, you know uh, Jedi mind control too. So I don't know what they're doing there, but there must be something they're doing because they're they're there's some kind of force shall we say oh star wars is just magic they, there's no thought behind it star wars is a lot of fun to watch but the force is just nah who knows there's no yeah i'm i'm, I'm a big star wars fan sorry well I, I love star wars sure but you know it's it's the force you know that's the answer to everything in star trek you have answers you know they explain it okay. all jordy laforge gets in the room with data and points <laughs> the stuff on the wall and explains why things are happening 
with Star I'm Wars. Just it just it, it just occurred to me in Star Wars that the Force is probably somehow manipulating uh, somebody's mind, just the way you said. So um, I'm sure, I'm yeah. Sure. And you know, it's funny because when when the, in the prequels in the in the in the maligned. Uh, George Lucas prequels, they tried to explain the Force a little bit with the midichlorian counts, and everybody went bananas. It's awful. So Yeah, it is. It is, because well, you can't, you don't, you don't, I agree with you. I wouldn't say it's magic, but you certainly, it's spiritual. You don't want to explain the spiritual with bad logic. No, no, not especially, I mean, when you have Sir Alec Guinness explaining it as just the Force is an energy that you flow with, and in his beautiful, mellifluous tones, it just sounds like poetry, <laughs> so you leave it at that. It just it just made me think of that when you said I could find an executive and change their brain. I thought, why not do it the fast way and just you know just use use the Jedi mind trick? Yeah, use the Force. Why not? Absolutely. Um, I'll let you know how that goes. <laughs> it sounds really cool. So the the next season of the One Hundred is on. Uh, when does that come on the air? I'm going to say February second and hope I'm right. <laughs> well, if it's not, then it's going to be close to it. Then how does that sound? It is going to be close to it. Well, that's awesome. I mean, I, I, it does. I mean, I literally, I have a, my 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 good buddy out in in L.A. He he has hounded me that I haven't watched it yet. I really I really should. There's a lot of great TV out there. You know, as somebody who's been working in television for as long as you have, I mean, it, do do you feel like uh, writers working in the field now don't realize how great they've got it? That you know, decades ago, it was so difficult to get. You know the type of material on the air that's that's now in demand you know you, you you know the new golden age as you put it i mean do the kids today not realize how great they've got it well yes and no yes and no i mean like i said earlier when i was writing on law and order a couple of things first of all well there were there were i grew up with three networks and by then there were four networks so there were four networks and HBO hadn't come into its own. So there are four networks doing dramas. I would look at any given show, any drama show on the air, and I'd look at the credits, and we all knew each other. It was a small group, so there weren't that many of us. And, you know, I'm not saying that was better or worse, but today there's just so much stuff on. Um, Part of it is good, and part of it is... For many of these shows, I think the bar has been set kind of low. So we, we get the highs and lows. It's easy mm. to talk about the new golden age because we have so much great stuff. But there's a lot of stuff that's really just kind of mediocre. And you think, well, you know, everybody needs to get a show on the air. They need to have something to stream. And so, you know, I, I guess there's something for everybody. But I think, if I may say this, I think the bar overall might have been lowered a little bit. I think people, younger people watching shows, however they're getting them, um, I don't know. I don't know. I'm not sure they're distinguishing between hmm. the really terrific stuff. Well, you know, it's interesting you say that because it's interesting to, to hear that because, you know, I, I look at Netflix and there's so much material on it and there's so many people watching that all of the shows have a following. You know, uh, right. there are people That's who. Right. So it's you feel like, oh, well, people say it's good, but people say everything is good. And there are so many right. shows on Netflix and, and Amazon and now Hulu is doing their own original content. Um, and they, they all have like their own Tumblr pages full of fans taking snapshots and, you know, uh, it's, it's hard to know which one to sink your teeth into. And, uh, you know, it, 
you know, it just it just feels like, well, if it's on Netflix, it's got to be good. You know, maybe not all of it is good. You know, maybe maybe some of it is a little formulaic. You know, it's just shocking. And of course, the way they 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 dump them on you, it's like you didn't hear about it one week and the next week, 13 episodes are already available and people are binge watching them. It's it's a it's a whole new way. Yeah, that's the other thing that I I'm not sure how I feel about it. For example, uh, I love Mozart in the Jungle. I just I think that's on Amazon. I think it's terrific because again, you could tell the way I talked about the hundred. I like to show the kind of upends expectations. It's it's slightly different in its storytelling, and yet it's really solid storytelling. I mean, it's got that three act structure in every episode and every season. Uh, but just the subject matter and the way they go about it, I think is fascinating. But what kills me is, so I watch all, I guess it's 10 episodes in a couple of days, and then I got to wait a year. Right. <laughs> that, doesn't, that doesn't seem fair. Yeah. Well, you know, the other thing that's kind of funny is um, is the shelf life. Uh, and in a way, it's good for the consumer, but it's it's weird for the show because I only now, I just started watching... Um, bored to death, which is already dead and buried. It had three seasons, and it, it concluded a while ago. But you know, you go to HBO, and it's if you're looking at it alphabetically, it's right up there toward the top. And it's very, very funny show. Jonathan Ames created it with um, who's in it? Ted Danson, Zach Galifianakis, and the star Jason Schwartzman is hilarious, and it's really, really funny. So I'm getting into it now, and but there's nobody to talk to about it because they all saw, they all watched it in 2008, 2009. But I, for whatever reason, have only come to it now, and it still feels fresh to me. So as a consumer, it's cool. But it, you know, back in the day, everybody tuned in Thursdays at 8 p.m. and they they watched the show together. So it's uh, the connect home of of television has been changed and altered a little bit. Uh, you know, just the way we process these new stories. There's there's no longer the uh, water cooler effect, which uh, w- by which everybody the next day would be talking about an episode because we all watched it at the same time. I remember in the in the last golden age, which I I, I think that's what it was called when Hill Street Blues and St. Elsewhere all those shows were on. I used to I had a, a friend I called religiously after every episode of Hill Street Blues to discuss it because we were all we were obviously watching it at the exact same time. Right, that was right. The only time you were going to see it until summer reruns. Oh my God, that sounds like I'm going to place the scene there. <laughs> but, uh, but, you know, I think, I, I, I guess what's, what's changed now is people just go to social media to talk about those things. But I think we've lost a little of the connective tissue as, as a society that we have, you know, the 6, 10, 15 shows we're all going to be talking about the next day. That, yeah. That's kind of gone, and I kind of miss that a little. Well, there's one show that's going to connect everybody, which is the new Star Trek that's going to be airing later this year in May. And, um, you know, if, if, uh, if those episodes um, on the new show have, uh, you know, as, if they're half as good as, as a Starship Mine and, and the Inner Light, uh, we know we're up, up to something good. So <laughs> that's, that's my dream that's very for that. Kind of you. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure they're going to surpass that. They've, they've got the... Uh, the manpower and the budget, and uh, I'm very excited about that show. Cool. Well, listen, thanks so much for taking the time uh, to chat with us. We've had a nice. Uh, we were all over the map. We talked. We didn't. You know, we didn't talk about one show that you worked on. I mean, you've done a lot of great stuff. You did. Uh, you, you did a Spider-Man uh, television. I'm looking. Yeah. I'm looking at your page right now, and yeah. you, you did the the show VIP with um, with uh, Pamela Anderson. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm all over the place. I'm but, all over the map. My 
Yeah. The one the one that I have to mention, you wrote one episode of a show in the early 90s with which I always thought was the greatest name of a television show. You wrote an episode called Since I Fell for You on the show No, no. Yes, Since I Fell for You on the show Jake and the Fat Man. Now, what's, oh, yeah, don't you, yeah, you don't remember that show? No, no, I remember it. I, I never saw it, but I remember what it was on. And the reason why it's funny to me is that I am, uh, you've met me, I am a gentleman of size, as we like to say, and my nephew's name is Jake. So when the two of us are together, it's Jake and the Fat Man. And uh, so the show is, is always on my mind whenever I see my nephew. But, uh, uh, you know, is that available streaming? Can I find old episodes I, of Jake I and hope, the Fat Man? I hope not. I, that was early in my career, and I did a lot of freelancing to start out um, for, for reasons we can talk about some other time. I consider myself very lucky that, that the start of my career was just freelancing for tons of different shows. Yeah. And I would kind of go where I heard there was work, and it doesn't mean I'm not proud of it. I have no memory of what that episode was about, but there were a lot of shows on the air then that you would watch them today, and you would think, did this guy just say the bar is set low now? You can't. I mean, there were like there were shows like Jake and the Fat Man and Hunter, and you know there were a lot of shows on that were just kind of by the numbers, episodic, uh, private detective shows. Yeah, and it's kind of funny by today's standards. I don't think you could do. It was a different time. It was and the expectations were different, and that was what was on to sort of keep keep the motors running, and you would have it on in the background and pay attention while you were doing the dishes and that's what it was. it was not about you know mad men and every episode being clues about the next one it wasn't like that it was that's a different right. time so. it, well it wasn't it wasn't serialized and the reason was and you can look go to law and order as the quintessential example of this that you can turn on if we're on sundance or any wherever they they're showing law and orders back to back and they can show one from season two next to one from season nine and it doesn't matter you start watching, you can watch any episode because they were all episodic, not serialized. But that was when the networks, the studios, excuse me, had to reach 100 episodes and syndicate them so that they could make their money back. Today, you have no such problem. You're making your money in many different ways and you, you make it right away. So there's no need to have episodes that can play over and over and over um, untethered from, from the other episode. Today, if you're going to watch a bunch of episodes, even if you wait, like you did with Bored to Death, you're still going to watch them in order. It's still a serial. Sure, episode. sure, yeah. Well, there's nothing better than Law and Order for when you're 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 sick and you're on the couch and <laughs> you know you just let them fly by. They're 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 gripping. They're fun. Everybody loves it, and uh, you know it's it's good stuff. So uh, cool. Well, again, thanks for uh, thanks uh, uh, for coming on the show, and we'll keep our fingers crossed for the uh, the new projects, and uh, we'll we'll take it from there. Thank you for having me, Jordan. Um, it's always a pleasure, and, and I am pleased that you are one of those people who said that Inner Light was worthy of the number two slot. That's so. true, yes. When I did, I did do the ranking of all the episodes for Playboy.com a few years ago, and, and I, using my scientific and mathematical <laughs> equations, it was proven that uh, beyond a shadow of a doubt, no one can argue that The Inner Light is the second greatest episode of Star Trek of all time, uh, on, beaten only by a fraction, by a, an eyelash, uh, by City on the Edge of Forever. But, uh, you know, when you reach that higher uh, echelon, they're all in the pantheon. So uh, so there you go. <laughs> thank, thank you so much. Thank all you. right. Okay. We'll talk to you soon. Bye. Take care. Bye-bye.
This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.